Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to The Gangster, book six in the Galactic Football League series. Written and performed by Scott Sigler, The Gangster is suitable for ages 12 and up and contains graphic violence. The Gangster is also available as a signed, numbered, limited edition hardcover while supplies last. To order, go to scottsigler.com slash store. Hello, junkies. It is all GFL updates today. GFL book six hardcover is at the stinkin' printer. That's right. The gangster is almost on the presses and soon will be heading your way. If you haven't ordered your copy yet, hurry up. You're almost out of time. ScottSigler.com slash the gangster. Remember, that book is a limited edition signed numbered hardcover that will have a galaxy map of the GFL shipped uh, separately, but it's included in the purchase price. That is 24 by 36. It's this awesome horizontal map done by Scotty Pond. It's killer and it will greatly amplify your enjoyment of any and all GFL stories. Now, we don't have a ship date yet for GFL book six hardcover because there is a backlog at the printer. A lot of hardcovers are backed up due to COVID shutdowns. We know it will be on the press soon, but we don't know when soon will be. And hey, FDO, what about GFL Book 7? Now that you're done with GFL Book 6, it's been almost five minutes since I finished a book you spent five years working on. When do I get that sucker? Well, you little rapscallion, you are asking me that so soon, but I do have an answer for you. It turns out I am 33% of the way through the second draft of GFL Book 7. So no promises, but we expect GFL Book 7 out sometime in 2022. And we're also doing the final punch-ins for the Stone Wolves audiobook. It's a GFL novel. It is a must-read or must-listen to better understand what happens in Book 7, and especially Book 8, because it all ends with Book 8. We expect the Stone Wolves ebook and audiobook out sometime in late 2021. GFL Book 6, GFL Book 7, the Stone Wolves. Those three combined alone are roughly 475,000 words of GFL goodness. That's 1,830 pages roughly, or 56 hours of audiobook. That's a lot of stuff. So let's get back to GFL Book 6 podcast. Let me get you caught up on the story, and then we're going to go feed some pigeons. Previously on The Gangster. Quentin has found the father he searched for his whole life. Now, with that quest complete, he must find out why that father abandoned him, left him a starving orphan on Makovi. Dark secrets of Quentin's past are revealed for the first time, next in The Gangster, episode number 25. Null Knife Quentin felt like an idiot. Twenty-three years, without knowing his father, and here he was wearing his father's clothes, 
the clothes fit, which would be impossible with just about any other human. Like father, like son. Quentin was still too weak to walk more than a few feet. He sat in Killian's quarters aboard the Oleron. Other than the medbay, this cabin and a couple of corridors, Quentin hadn't seen much of the ship. What he had seen, however, certainly justified Killian's description. A bucket of bolts. A cargo hauler, the ship was perhaps five times the size of the Hypatia. The Oleron seemed ancient, a functioning relic kept in use only because it would have cost too much to scrap it. Everything looked worn, beat up, mismatched, and so heavily modified that Quentin wasn't sure if there was anything original left. Killian was the captain of this ship, and yet this closet of a cabin was a tenth the size of Quentin's stateroom on the Hypatia. Quentin could stand up straight in here, but only in the narrow strip of space between the single bunk on one side and the tiny captain's desk on the other. Killing was sitting on the edge of the bunk, Quentin in the desk chair. The cabin was barely big enough for one person Killian's size, let alone two. The cabin was neat and clean, though. It had the look of a place that belonged to someone who had spent a lifetime in the military. Killian made good use of what little space was available. You'd think the captain would have bigger quarters, Quentin said. Killian shrugged. Aya has the captain's cabin. You'll meet her in a minute. Young girl. She needs the space more than I do, I suppose. Besides, this was my cabin when I wasn't the captain, so I kept it. I loathe moving. The top of Quentin's tongue played against the back of his new tooth. He glanced round at the yellowing white paint. Whatever floats your boat. A knock on the door. Enter, Killian said. The heavy hatch swung inward with the hinge squeal of metal on metal. The white walls vanished, rough stone in their place. Carmaga was coming to take him to the X. Quentin? Quentin opened his eyes. Confined white room, Killian, and a young human woman holding a metal box the size of her chest. Quentin Barnes, Killian said. Meet Aya Omiata. She was stunning. Not because of her face, which was far from ugly, but because of the color of her skin. Amethyst, perhaps the rarest human skin tone in the galaxy. Much of the skin on her arms was covered with black tattoos. Quentin was sitting, Aya was standing, yet they were at eye level with each other. She couldn't have been much over four feet tall. She stared at Quentin. He recognized the look on her face, as he'd seen expressions just like it thousands of times before unabashed hero worship. Hi, Aya said. Quentin nodded once. Nice to meet you. You look nader, she said. Bakuninator. Bakuna. What does that mean? I think she means you look awful, Killian said. It's hard to tell sometimes. I would rather speak in slang than in a way everyone can understand. Aya rolled her eyes. Says the oldest man that ever was. Skipper, this one is even bigger than you are. I didn't think that was possible. I here is our comms expert, among other things, Killian said. I call her a universal competent. Give her any job, she'll figure out how to get it done. She again looked at Quentin, a dreamy look in her eyes. Killian reached out, lightly wrapped his knuckles against the metal box. Aya gave her head a hard shake, as if to chase away a mental fog. Oh, right, she said, and offered Killian the box. He took it, set it at his feet. She again stared at Quentin. That's all, Aya, Killian said. The girl blinked, nodded, 
Yeah, Apex. If you need anything else, you let me know. If either of you need anything else. Killian stood, gently guided the girl out of the cabin, then shut the hatch. This time, Quentin braced himself against the metallic squeal of the hinges. I has got the hots for you, Killian said. Quentin held up his left hand. He meant to wiggle the championship-slash-wedding ring on his finger, but he'd forgotten he'd left the ring with Becca when he'd been arrested. He put the hand down. I'm taken, he said. Killian gave a half-smile. Your wife sounds like a real keeper, he said. I'd like to meet her someday. A hopeful tone in Killian's voice. He could hope all he wanted. Quentin was grateful for the rescue, but they weren't suddenly going to become one big happy family. Too bad you weren't at my wedding, Quentin said. You could have met her then. Killian sighed, nodded. Fair enough. He opened the box. It was a cooler. Capped brown bottlenecks peeked up from chunks of white ice. Smiling, Killian offered one to Quentin. Miller Lager, the brown bottle coated with condensation and bits of slowly sliding ice. I've read this beer is your favorite. Quentin didn't take it. Bottles. I didn't know they made those anymore. Killian shrugged. Hard to find, but I know some places. I can't stand the way mag cans make beer taste. He gave the bottle a quick, rotating twitch. Take it. Quentin leaned back in his chair. No thanks. Killian's smile faded. He opened the beer for himself, tossed the cap into the cooler, and closed the lid. Quentin's heart felt like it was being torn in half. Part of him wanted to beat this man to death, to feel knuckles break teeth, to inflict a tiny shred of the pain Quentin had suffered throughout his childhood. Another part of him couldn't believe he'd finally met his father. That part wanted the beer, wanted to sit and talk, to listen to what had to be a perfectly good reason for Killian leaving his wife and children behind. I know you've been through a lot, Killian said. Trust me, son, if I don't call me that. The words came out with razor sharpness and all but drew blood from Killian. The man seemed to wilt even more. Yeah, I've been through a lot, Quentin said. Three weeks of torture ain't exactly a walk in the park. I was talking about your time on McCovey. I lived there too. I grew up in the nation. Quentin crossed his arms. Oh, tell me all about it. You grew up like me? Were you in the mines at five years old? Did people come at you every day and try and take your food? Did you spend your childhood being told that you were orphan garbage? Quentin wanted to hear that his father had gone through the same experiences. There would be a commonality there, a bit of justification, perhaps. I survived it, so I knew my son could too. A bond forged by a shared ordeal. And yet, somehow, Quentin knew that wasn't the case. Killian glanced at the closed cooler, as if it was more comfortable to look at than at his seething son. I didn't grow up like you, Killian said. Your grandfather was in the church. I had money, food, education. I graduated from the Cooper School. The chasm between father and son grew instantly wider. The Cooper School, where McCovey's elite sent their kids. Well, I'm sure you had very hard times there. Quentin said. Maybe one of your private tutors didn't bathe that often, or your stakes weren't quite marbled enough. You graduated from Cooper. Then what? A cushy job in finance? Or did you walk straight into a low-level church position? Killian drank a swig of beer. 
He thought for a little while, fingertips tapping on the bottle. Neither, he said. I joined the military. Not uncommon for Cooper School kids. Another stepping stone, Quinn said. Right? You don't want to work your way up from the bottom of the church, so you went for the checkmark yes on military service and the nice in-uniform photo ops? I'm sure that let you skip a few levels, right? Quentin felt detached from reality, as if some evil version of himself had taken control of his mouth. Why was anger so blatantly audible in his every syllable? I joined because I thought I could make a difference, Killian said. I wanted to serve the nation. Every church official with a military background said the same thing. How'd that work out for you? Killian drained the beer. He opened the cooler and slid the empty back into the ice. He pulled out a second bottle. Great at first. He opened the beer, tossed the cap into the ice. Or so I thought at the time. I was 18. What do 18-year-olds know? 18. Quentin had been one year older than that when he'd left McCovey to join the Krakens. Had that really only been five years ago? But Quentin understood what Killian meant. At 19, Quentin had thought he'd known everything, when in truth, he'd known nothing at all. I excelled, Killian said. Wasn't long before I was tapped for special operations. An image of Killian in the borehole corridor, hidden in the shadows, that oversized, bladed pistol in his hand. Now the memory of that weapon came back, and came back strong. It was a legendary tool of death, the iconic 700-caliber five-shot Orphaner, used only by the purest nation's most elite soldiers. You were a null knife? Killian nodded. If the man was telling the truth, it was an impressive accomplishment. Null knives were the purest nation's best of the best. They specialized in espionage, demolitions, and more. They performed missions on enemy soil. Quentin had watched dozens of church-approved news holos showing the Null Knife squads in their tiny, stealth landing craft performing all kinds of heroic missions. And, of course, Null Knives were the subject of many church-approved action movies. Their adaptive camouflage cloak and their orphaner pistols, always a signature part of the movie's final act. So you were a badass soldier, Quentin said. What happened then? You go AWOL? Is that why you couldn't come back to us? Let's cut to the shucking chase, Dad. Where have you been for the last 20 years? Killian stared at his bottle of beer. My military career happened long before you were born, he said. Long before I met your mother. Maybe the word long didn't mean the same thing to Killian as it did to Quentin. The man was 50, max. If so, Quentin would have been born when Killian was about 27 and Janine when Killian had been about 17. Those numbers didn't add up. You must be older than you look, Quentin said. Killian huffed a bitter laugh. Yeah, I hear that from time to time. I was a good soldier. So good that after only a year they made me a spy. I said goodbye to my parents. My handler sent me to Neptune, gave me a new identity. As an orphan, ironically. Easy to do in a net colony, where ships come and go all the time. Per my orders, I enlisted in the Planetary Union Navy. Built up a whole fake life. Then my handlers pulled the strings they'd been waiting to pull, and I got assigned to a secret ship called the Keeling. Two years I spent in that nightmare box. I saw things I can't explain. Things that no one can explain. 
I did, I did horrible things. I killed people. The gun jumping in his hand. The hole in Sandoval's head. Sandoval's eyes wide open, staring. The man falling forward, already dead. Quentin? Quentin blinked back to the moment. You blanked out, Killian said. Again. Real concern on Killian's face, which infuriated Quentin. And Quentin wasn't sure why. I'm fine. Finish your story. Killian's eyes narrowed. Maybe you need some sleep. I think I can stay awake for a few more minutes. Tell me about the keeling. Killian picked at the label on his bottle. I do a pretty good job of not thinking about those years, he said. Most of the time, anyway. Nights are harder than days. What happened there? Instead of talking, the older man drank, draining the rest of the bottle in one pull. He shoved the empty into the ice, pulled out a third bottle. I'm not interested in talking about it. You owe me, Quentin said. Killian nodded, opened his beer. Then send me an invoice, because I'm not paying up today. A growl in his voice, one that made the hairs on Quentin's scalp stand on end. Was that the reaction of the lost little boy hearing his father's stern voice? Or was it more than that? Would anyone feel a sense of dread when Killian Carbonaro spoke that way? Quentin was too exhausted to force the issue. But you made it out. Off that ship, I mean. And this happened before you met Mom? Killian nodded, took another long pull. Yeah. I left the military, signed on with a merchant ship. This one, to be precise. I spent six... Uh, well, I spent a lot of years aboard the Oleron. There was something weird about the way he'd cut off the word six. Was he going to say sixteen? When Captain Jornell died, she left the Oleron to me, Killian said. I've been the captain ever since. When did that happen? Killian waved a hand as if the question wasn't important. Doesn't matter, he said. I'd seen most of the galaxy at that point. I'd recovered from the war as much as a man can. When the bats took over... I started thinking about settling down. When the bats took over? That was 45 years ago. By looking at Killian, the man might have been 10 when that happened. His story was already full of holes. So why did it seem so genuine? Quentin had become an expert at sensing lies, almost as good as a quith leader like Greedock. Killian wasn't lying. I went back to McCovey, he said. My parents had died while I was while I was away. I'd saved up a bunch of money, so I bought two more ships and started a hauling company. That's when I met your mom. At that memory, the corners of Killian's mouth twitched into a trace of a wistful smile. It wasn't hard to see the man still missed his wife. Missed her as much as Quentin would miss Becca someday. The stab of a loss yet to happen instantly made Killian more real, despite his crazy story. It made him human, frail and incompetent in stumbling through life just like everyone else. You had four kids, Quentin said. Then you left. How old was I when you left? Killian closed his eyes. Day after your first birthday. Quentin wanted to hate the man, wanted it desperately, but the hate wasn't sticking. It couldn't, not with the pain rolling across the man in waves. Whatever Killian's reasons for leaving, whether they were real or not, Doing so had torn him apart, was still tearing him apart. Maybe Quentin could hate him later. Janine's alive, Quentin said. 
killing Rockback so fast, he bonked his head against the wall. He blinked. Don't lie to me. I'm not. She lives on Ionath. The man considered that for a moment. I was away from McCovey when she left, he said. She and I didn't get along. Maybe I wasn't the best parent to her I could be. Not exactly a ground-shaking admission. I had anger issues, Killian said. She was the oldest. She took the brunt of it. I'm sure she left McCovey because of me to get away before I returned. Did she find you after you started playing football? Quentin shook his head. No, I found her. A guy I hired found her, I mean. She still hasn't talked to me about it, but I get the impression some bad stuff went down between you two. That's one way to put it, Killian said. Janine is alive. I'm surprised, but maybe I shouldn't be. She was always tough. So tough. Hidden volumes of history in those words, Quentin sensed. Janine was ten years older than he was. Someday, maybe they could all sit down together, and Quentin could learn what had happened between his father and his sister. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Like water inevitably seeping down a slow drain, Quentin's animosity toward this man was fading away. A guy pretended to be my dad once, Quentin said. Killian nodded. Yitzhak told me. Quentin had fallen for that act. He'd allowed himself to be played. Yes, he'd believed that actor had been his father, but talking to Killian felt different. Different visually, emotionally, different in his soul. Denying that this man was his father was like denying the light from the stars. The man's face, the man's voice, they were extensions of Quentin's own. I've been waiting my whole life to meet you, Quentin said. My whole life. Killian's face tightened, pain in those eyes. I know. Simple as that. A two-word admission. This man had abandoned his children. Maybe he had reasons, people always have reasons, but he wasn't absolving himself of the responsibilities he'd failed to fulfill. I knew you grew up hard, Killian said. I lived on McCovey. I know what life is like for orphans. I wish you hadn't had to go through that. I don't expect you to believe me, but if I'd stayed, your life would have been even worse. Even worse? 
This man had no idea what he was talking about. Quentin still felt weak, but not so much that a fresh surge of anger didn't bring power to his words. They hung Quincy when I was four, Quentin said, because he tried to steal bread to feed me. Killian's gaze dropped. He stared at the floor. Yeah, he said. I know. Quentin wasn't a father yet. He could only imagine what it would feel like to lose a child. But Killian hadn't been there to protect his son. He deserved to hurt. Quincy didn't steal money, Quentin said. Didn't steal jewelry, didn't take anything fancy, just food. They hung him for it. I was the last family member alive, so I was responsible for the family debt. At four, I worked where I was told to work. What else was I going to do? I had no one. Killian rubbed at his face. Quentin heard skin sliding over stubble. The first time someone tried to rape me, I was nine, Quentin said. I hit that man in the head with a rock. I never found out if he lived or not, because I had to run, because he was part of the church and he could do whatever he wanted. If I'd reported it or been found anywhere near him, I'd probably have hung as well. Quentin remembered the days following that incident, living on the streets, terrified of anyone in a blue robe, hiding whenever he saw honor police. He had been sure that every person he walked past would point at him, scream for the police to take him away. He'd gone four days without sleeping. Men were always beating me up, taking my food, what little money I had, Quentin said. I learned how to fight. Not with any real skill. I'm not a boxer. I learned how to hit first, how to hit hard, how to keep hitting until the man didn't move anymore. I made people afraid of me so they would leave me alone. I was tall for my age, but so skinny. Can you imagine the kind of beatings a nine-year-old boy would have to deliver to make grown men fear him? Killian didn't respond. This was a beating of a different kind. Quentin was dishing it out. His father sat there and took it. The older man looked so pathetic that Quentin wanted to stop but couldn't. He'd never spoken of these things to anyone, not even Becca. Now that he'd started, he couldn't stop. But you know how McCovey is, Quentin said. Some people you beat up and they go away. Some get mad. It's about their honor, right? The first person who tried to kill me was someone I'd whooped a few weeks earlier. He came at night with a knife when he thought I was sleeping. I was ten, ten years old, fighting in a dark room against a full-grown man while the other guys in my bunkhouse waited to see if we would both die so they could take our stuff. I got the knife, and I cut that man, Dad. I cut him bad. He didn't die, but he never bothered me again. It had been years since Quentin had thought about that night, thought about how he'd stitched up his own arm with thread pulled from his blanket. Years since he'd bit the man's knife hand, had tasted blood. Years since he'd thought about how the man had screamed when Quentin had buried the knife in his thigh. Old memories like that get covered up by new ones of touchdowns and victories, of friends and screaming fans, of money and fame. Covered up, but not erased. Never erased. I guess you could say I got my first big break when I was 12, Quentin said. I'd hit a growth spurt. 
I was as big as most grown men, so I could work the mining machines. I got hired by a company that actually had round bug antivenom on hand, so the two times I got bit and contracted Herop's disease, I survived. I only had to spend a week each time with a fever that almost killed me in agonizing pain, unable to move from the shakes, starving, because on McCovey, if you don't work, you don't eat. Killian's shoulders trembled. Quentin's words were electricity. The bunk on which Killian sat, a metal X. This cabin, his place of torture. And still, Quentin could not stop. When I was 14, I was deep in the mines, taking my 15-minute lunch break. A man came at me for what little food I had. I think he was drunk, because he was a lot smaller than I was. Still, you can't show compassion or understanding in the mines, because if you do, people will smell weakness, and that's your ass. Someone comes at you for any reason, you have to make an example of them. I hit this guy so hard, I broke his jaw. Knocked him out. I left him there, in the mines, unconscious. The next day, I found out that someone had stabbed him to death, right where I'd left him. I didn't kill him, and sure, it was self-defense, but if I hadn't hit him, he wouldn't have died. I could go on and on with these stories. You still think my childhood would have been worse if my own father had stayed with his family? Killian didn't answer immediately. He stared at the beer bottle in his hands. Not in an abstract way, Quentin sensed, but rather in contemplation about the things those hands had done over the years. You're alive, he said finally. All those things you described, none of them killed you. Had I stayed, you would have died. Just like Quincy did, just like Quaid did, just like Mom did. Killian closed his eyes. Inside of Quentin, something dark rejoiced. It wriggled and writhed, satisfied and growing fat. Seeing this man hurt felt good. The sensation sickened Quentin even as it thrilled him. I wasn't sure about Janine, Killian said, but I knew about Quincy and Quaid, and your mom. I knew you were alive, of course. I've been watching your games ever since you started playing in the PNFL. That totally makes you a father of the decade candidate. This man had rescued Quentin from a torturous hellhole, yet even a momentous thing like that couldn't begin to ease the pain of growing up without a father, without a mother, without a family. Quentin hated him, loved him, hated him all over again. Quincy and I were the only ones left, Quentin said. We had no one to take care of us. I watched my brother die kicking like mad, his eyes bulging, his fingers clawing at the noose around his neck until his fingers bled, and that's enough. No tears. Maybe Killian had already cried all he could. Or maybe he'd never cried at all. That was my childhood, Quentin said. You still want to stick to your story that things could have been worse? Anger flared in Killian's eyes. The faintest pulse of red coursed up those odd lines on his face. The color faded instantly, as if it had never been there at all, as if the man had won a battle to control his anger. My enemies would have found us, he said. If you were lucky, you'd have gone under the knife first. That way, you wouldn't have had to watch your brothers and sisters be beaten, cut, burned, skinned alive. You wouldn't have had to watch them die screaming, knowing you could do nothing to help them as you waited for your turn to come. They would have made your mother and I watch all of our children die unimaginable deaths, 
They would have made your mother and I watch so I could see her agony, so she could ask me why over and over, so that she would know it was my fault her children were tortured and murdered in front of her. Quentin held his breath. Killian wasn't lying, wasn't exaggerating. This is what the man thought would have happened if he'd stayed. After you kids were dead, they would have started in on her. They would have made it last. They would have cut off my eyelids so I had no choice but to watch. They would have kept her alive a long time, probably even let her heal up so they could do it again and again, all as I watched. You wanted to make an example of your enemies in the mines? My enemies like to make an example, too. So yes, son, as bad as your life was, things would have been worse if I hadn't put as much distance as I could between me and everything I loved. Far shucking worse. The small cabin filled with silence. Quentin wondered what he would do if he were faced with the same threat. Would he stay and fight? Or would it actually be better to leave if leaving meant Becca and their child had at least a chance to survive? Who would do something like that? He asked. What did you do that would cause someone to torture your family to death in front of you? Killian slowly peeled the label off his beer bottle. I've done a lot of things. I joined the military because I was a patriot. When I got out, I kept fighting because I believed in freedom. Eventually, I learned that patriotism and freedom are illusions. Those things create excuses for sentience to be monstrous to each other. I was a monster, and I'm still paying the price. Killian's expression hardened like cured concrete. This conversation is over, he said. There's much you deserve to know. We don't always get what we deserve. The anger that had been Quentin's second wind faded away, and with it the last of his strength. So tired. He twitched as a ghost pain shot through him. He gripped the edge of the desk until it passed. Quentin rubbed at his face, tried to focus. I was a monster, and I'm still paying the price. Quentin was paying a similar price. Weeks of torture. Because of Greedock. The leader had decided Quentin was no longer useful as a football player. Quentin's worst fear come to life. Greedock had found a way to bury Quentin alive, to shove him into a deep, dark hole from which there should have been no escape. Who would be next on Greedock's list? Becca? Janine? Fred? The Tweedies? Killian had run from his enemies. Could Quentin do the same? Take Becca and just go? Killian had been a spy, a covert operative, someone who knew how to hide, how to become another person. Quentin was the most famous sentient in the galaxy. Where could he go? How much surgery would he need to permanently change his appearance, enough so that he wouldn't be recognized on sight? Even that wouldn't matter. Unless he took Janine, Fred, Chodo, the Tweeties, and maybe even more sentience with him, Greedock would still get them. Quentin couldn't run. Which meant he had to attack. Could he even get near Greedock now? Doubtful. Even if there was a way to reach the leader... Quentin didn't know if he could kill him. Another death on his hands, like that of Jonathan Sandoval. Maybe hire someone to take Greedock out? Would Fred do it? This was a no-win game. Quentin knew one person who could possibly get to Greedock as opposed to the leader's endless experience in ordering death, as opposed to the untold number of murderers the leader had access to. 
Quentin, you phase out on me again? No, just thinking. Quentin didn't know the first thing about how to take out a crime lord. Maybe Killian did, though. If Killian was a special ops soldier, like he'd said, then... No. There was another way. A way both simpler and far more complex. A way provided by Anna Vellani. A way where Quentin didn't have to go anywhere at all. You said we're one full punch from Ionath. You sure? Killian nodded. If Chodo had followed orders, Richfield now possessed the case with the Gibblejuants. Richfield. And Greedock. Was there a way to kill two birds with one stone? To kill all the birds? If I can convince the doctor that she's going to get paid, Quentin said, and I stay here as a bargaining chip of sorts, and she releases the missile lock, could you take the Oleron to Ionath and then come back here? Killian blinked rapidly, as if he couldn't quite process what he'd just heard. That's a lot of ifs, he said. If you have a way to pay the contact, tell me, and we'll all get out of here together. Why the hell would my crew and I come back to the borehole a third time? Because I want you to bring Greedock the Splithead here. He's a threat to me and my family. I want to end that threat. Killian leaned back, shook his head slightly. You're not making any sense, he said. If you want Greedock dead, why bring him here to get it done? Because there's no way to get at him in Ionath. He's paranoid because of the attacks on me. His assistant, Masalvi Efficient, told me Greedock has increased his security and the Kraken's building was already a fortress. I have to lure Greedock away from there. And besides, I don't want him dead. You don't want him dead, Killian said, speaking slowly, as if talking to someone who wasn't all that smart. You think you can just sit down with a crime boss like him, crack a beer, and iron out your difficulties like a couple of pals? Just answer my question. Could you take the Oleron to Ionath and then come back here? Killian tapped the beer bottle against the inside of his knee. I could, but I couldn't take the whole crew, he said. Aya would have to stay here, manage the computer system while I'm gone, which puts her at risk. If the bats come here before I return, she's dead, or she becomes a permanent resident, and I won't be able to get at her. After the bats retake control of this place for the second time, You can bet they'll tear everything out at the roots. They'll find our code, make sure we can't get in again. So assuming that Aya would agree to that kind of idiocy, because that is her choice, not yours, what do you think is going to happen? If Greedock is so well protected, you think he can't be killed, do you really think he can be kidnapped instead? Quentin felt tired. So tired, but his idea brought with it a burst of energy. There was only one question that really needed to be answered. Did he know the Kraken's owner as well as he thought he did? You don't need to kidnap him, Quentin said. If things go right, Greedock will come here on his own. The first thing I need is for you to pick up something from a friend of mine and bring it back. Killian shook his head. If I go, not when. And I told you, we can't tell anyone you're alive. If word gets out, I know, if word gets out, the bats will swarm this place. We can trust this sentient to stay quiet. You'd better be certain of that, Killian said. You're not only betting your life on this, you're betting my crew's life as well. Richfield thought Quentin was a living god. She would do anything he asked. My friend will stay quiet, he said. Trust me. Killian thought, 
scratched at his neck. Assuming the rest of my crew opts in, we fly the Ulrin back to Ionath and pick up this mysterious package. What's the second thing? Quentin paused, thinking of what was needed for his idea to work. You're inside contact. The doctor. Do you think she's a good liar? Killian thought, shrugged. I don't know. She was still here after the last escape, so maybe? Depends on if she was questioned after that, I suppose. Quentin would have to evaluate that for himself when he met the doctor. If she seemed like a good actor, his plan might work. If not, he'd look for another way. The second thing I need you to do is take the doctor with you to Ionath. I need her to deliver a message to Greedock that I want to apologize to him, that the bats have given him special permission to come here. Killian laughed. No way a gangster like Greedock would fall for that. Perhaps had it been any other gangster, Killian would be right, but Quentin knew full well Greedock's hate. In the leader's eyes, Quentin had challenged him too many times, disrespected him too many times. Having Quentin killed would give Greedock some level of satisfaction. Sending Quentin to a bat prison would bring even more. But there was one level of satisfaction that, Quentin hoped, the leader would not be able to pass up. We had the doctor tell Greedock that I've been in my cell begging for a chance to apologize to him. She'll tell him I'm broken down, that I hope an apology will make Greedock recant his testimony, which would set me free. She'll tell him she can bring him here to see me, but she'll only do that for a price, a high price. He'll fall for it. Money is the language he speaks. Killian thought it over, absently scratched at his chin. We'd have to ask my contact if she'll do it. Her call. She obviously takes great risks for money, Quentin said. So I'll offer her a lot of it. A head tilt and yet another shrug indicated Killian thought the doctor might go for it. She's definitely greedy, he said. But it seems quite a stretch that the bats would allow a criminal to visit a secret facility. Greedock would know that. He's not just a gangster anymore. The way he's spun it, he is the reason the Prowat joined the GFL. He's responsible for a major leap forward in species relations. And he believes his own spin. He thinks he's some kind of great negotiator. Sounds like he's been drinking the Kool-Aid. What's Kool-Aid? Never mind, Killian said. Let's say you pull off the impossible, and you get Greedock to come to you. If you're not going to kill him, what are you going to do? You think you can just lock him up here or something? If Killian didn't approve of the plan, Quentin had no idea what to do next. Best to lay all the cards on the table. That item you'll get from my friend on Ionath, it's Gibblejuance. When Greedock gets here, I'm going to use it on him. Gibblejuance is a hormone that I know what it does, Killian said and I know how illegal it is to possess it. A sharpness to his voice that hadn't been there before. You've broken people out of an imperial prison, Quentin said. Twice. Doesn't seem like breaking the law bothers you that much. And if you don't do this, Greedak will get me eventually. So what was the point of you risking your crew to rescue me in the first place? Killian's face clouded over. It's not like you give Greedak the gibble juance and he changes instantly, he said. The transformation process takes seven to ten standard days. Waiting here that long is suicide, and I am not letting Greedox change happen on my ship. Where are we going to take him while he becomes a her? Seven to ten days. Quentin would be an escaped felon on the run. 
You told me there were other abandoned asteroid mines in this sector. Lots of them, you said. Could we hide in one of those? Killian opened his mouth to speak to shoot down the idea, but he glanced off, thought for a second. Mm, That might work, he said. There's thousands of them. But if the bats do an all-out search for you, they still might find us. It's too risky. Quentin couldn't do this by himself. He needed the Oleron, the ship's crew. Killian had to be a part of this. Getting him to buy in was simply a matter of finding which button to push. My wife is pregnant. Killian's eyes widened. What? You're going to be a grandfather. I hope that means something to you. Because if you don't help me, Greedock won't just kill me. He'll kill Becca as well. Maybe why she's still pregnant. If she lives long enough to give birth, Greedock will eventually kill her and the baby both. Quentin half expected his father to say something like, no one would do such a thing. But the man did not. I will take Greedock out for you. I'm not happy about the idea, but I'll do it. I'll go to Ionath. I won't let him get what's left of my family. Quentin remembered seeing Killian in the shadows, the big pistol, the red lines on his face making him look like the low one. The man had been a null knife, the nation's best killers. Even if Killian could pull it off, sending him would be no different than if Quentin pulled the trigger himself. Flashing memories of Jonathan Sandoval's blank, dead stare. I'll tell you again, I don't want Greedock dead, Quentin said. And if you miss, if his people get to you before you get him, he'll kill my people. My idea is the only way to be free of him and not take his life. Killian's hard stare softened. He uncrossed his arms, sighed. So you're not a born killer, he said. Believe it or not, that's a relief. You're not like your old man. I'll talk to my crew. This idea is stupid, but they're adults. Adults make choices. If they agree, then I'll do everything in my power to help you. Let's see what they say. Killian stood, drained his beer, put the empty back into the cooler. Come on, he said. Let's get this over with. You have been listening to The Gangster, book six in the Galactic Football League series, written and narrated by Scott Ziegler. Follow Scott on Instagram and Twitter, where he is at Scott Ziegler, one word, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Scott Ziegler. For more information on the Galactic Football League series and for more free audiobook podcasts, visit scottsigler.com. The Gangster was directed by A. Sigler, engineered by Steve Rickyberg. Copyright 2020, Empty Set Entertainment. Theme music is the song They're Watching Me by the band Super Weapon. Every five minutes, a transplant candidate dies while waiting for a compatible heart, liver, or kidney. Imagine a technology that could provide those life-saving transplant organs for a high price, and imagine what a company would do to monopolize that technology. 
on a remote island in Lake Superior. A team of geneticists unlocks this holy grail of medicine by reverse engineering the genomes of all mammals, creating an animal with organs perfectly suitable for human transplantation. They envisioned a docile herd animal, but one team member had another, darker vision. This ancestor is anything but docile. The team's work spawns something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler, with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.